Welcome to Inspiring Adventure by Vertebrate Publishing, the podcast that connects you to the great outdoors through literature. Welcome to episode 17 of the Inspiring Adventure podcast. Today's extract is from Wild Country, The Man Who Made Friends by Mark Valance. It's read by John D. Burns, author of Skydance, Bothy Tales and The Last Hill Walker. In early 1978, an extraordinary new invention for rock climbers was featured on the BBC television science show Tomorrow's World. It was called The Friend and it not only made the sport safer, it helped push the limits of the possible. The company that made them was called Wild Country, the brainchild of Mark Valance. Within six months, Valance was selling friends in 16 countries. Wild Country would go on to develop much of the gear that transformed climbing in the 1980s. Mark Valance's influence on the outdoor world extends far beyond the company he founded. He owned and opened the influential retailer outside in the Peak District and was part of the team that built the foundry, Sheffield's premier climbing wall, the first modern climbing gym in Britain. He worked for the Peak District National Park and served on its board. He even found time to climb 80,000 metre peaks and the nose on Al Capitan. Diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in his mid-50s and robbed of his plans for retirement, Valance found a new sense of purpose as a reforming president of the British Mountaineering Council. In Wild Country, Valance traces his story from childhood influences like Robin Hodgkin and Sir Jack Longland to two years in Antarctica where he was base commander of the UK's largest and most southerly scientific station at Halley Bay before his fateful meeting with Ray Jardine, the man who invented friends in Yosemite. My first leader fall was from the Dangler, a strenuous and serious roof crack on Stanage. I was feeling good and quickly climbed the first 25 feet to where the crack splits a six-foot overhang. Here I placed a runner, a cast-iron wedge about the size of a moak, but made by my school friend, Richard Johnson. The runner looked good where I had set it at the back of the overhang, and on painful hand jams, I climbed quickly to the lip of the overhang, jamming my left foot into a constriction. From here, the route becomes very strenuous, so speed is important. Not seeing another runner, I pulled up and then locked off my left hand to reach up into the continuation of the crack to my right. I could see a good jam, but I couldn't quite reach it. I needed to get my whole body just a little bit higher. I cranked on both arms, but as I reached for the jam, my foot came out of the constriction and I found myself hanging from my left hand, surprised I hadn't fallen. I found a poor hole for my right hand, tried to pull up, but there was no strength left. I tried to climb back where I'd placed the runner. Nick was holding the rope quite tight, and as I moved back, I thought I saw the steel wedge move. If that came out, I'd be in for a nasty fall. Now I was hanging from both hands at the lip of the overhang, unable to get up or go back. I was going to fall, and the only runner I had was loose. 
I hung there, getting progressively more tired. I looked about for a miracle. I didn't have to wait very long to confirm miracles weren't currently available. I was going to fall. My fingers opened. I fell. As I dropped, I twisted to get my shoulder facing the rock, knowing that if the runner held, I would swing inwards and slam hard against the lower part of the climb. I also tried to remain upright, so if the runner came out, I could try and land on my feet. My shoulder thumped into the rock. Then nothing. No pain, no more falling. The runner had held. Although I attempted harder routes from time to time, I had a mental block about leading routes of VS, very severe. In those days, still a grade of consequence. Today, it would be the equivalent of breaking the extreme barrier. I spent 1960 leading severes, gaining experience, confidence, strength and judgment. I learned that gaining physical skill requires the participant to repeat movements over and over again. So the movement becomes hardwired. That repetition applies to all the moves you can think of, so that you build up a repertoire to draw on without needing to think. When climbing at one's limit, the body must perform subconsciously, leaving your conscious mind free to concentrate on any new, on any new or unexpected situations you find yourself in. Robin Hodgkin drew on the educational theories of Michael Polanyi to suggest that when one learns a new skill, rehearsing it again and again, a network of remembered actions develops, stretching back in time that one can bring to bear on the present moment. Modern advances in neuroscience rather back him up on this. Each new climbing experience not only increases one's database of experience, it also opens up new opportunities in the future. Following this theory, Nick and I had not only amassed a wealth of experience, we primed ourselves. Following this theory, Nick and I had not only amassed a wealth of experience, we primed ourselves for future success. In the Easter holidays of 1961, I cycled out to Garden's Edge to meet Nick. My diary entry starts, Today I beat the VS barrier. I soloed a route called Cider, then led capillary crack, undertaker's buttress, and traction, all of them very severe. The next day we went to Frogget Edge, and I climbed four more, Sunset Slab, Sunset Crack, Janker's Groove, and Janker's Crack. The last three, all of which I soloed, Back at school, I had an afternoon at Black Rocks and added Lone Tree Groove, Lean Man's Climb and Birch Tree Wall. On the weekend before my O-levels, Hodgkin took a group of us up Stanage Edge where we had a great weekend romping up many climbs. A few days later, I soloed 20 routes on Birch and Edge, including the Crow's Nest. Suddenly, it all seemed so easy. At that time, in the early 60s, it was considered naffed by expensive rock climbing routes known as PAs if you didn't have the ability to justify the purpose. You learn to climb in vibrant sole boots and climb the harder routes in gym shoes. I had set myself a target of climbing Brown's Eliminate at Froggett's Edge before considering myself worthy of buying a pair of rock boots. First climbed by Joe Brown in 1948, the route was graded hard VS. 
There was no protection and it had a reputation for being dangerous. My friend, Clive Jones, had broken both his wrists and severed one of his optic nerves in a fall below the crux many years later. Another friend, Paul Williams, was killed when a handhold broke off near the top. Today, Brown's Eliminate is graded extreme, or E25B to be precise. Having finished my exams, I spent five days on a course at Whitehall, just outside Buxton, the outdoor centre Jack Longland had established in 1950. My diary entry for July the 13th reads... We walked from Blackwell and climbed several routes on Birchin Edge, then walked to the Bob Downs hut at Froggart, which had only recently been opened. After a good supper, Adrian Holgate and I went up to the edge. I left Adrian at the top and went down to look at my chosen climb. I was looking up at 45 feet of not quite vertical rock, a six-inch wide ledge bisected it at about 15 feet, after which a few fingertip flakes indicated that the line I had taken to reach good holes about 20 feet from the top. I climbed up as far as the ledge without difficulty and edged along it till I was under the line of flakes. I placed my fingertips on the top edge of the front flake. It was square-edged, positive, but very narrow, maybe a centimetre at most. I worked out the next few moves of a series of similar thin flakes, which provided narrow, spaced, but positive holes and led to the good holes below the top. I placed the tip of my gym shoe onto a small ledge on the side of the first flake, straightened my leg and lifted my right foot and placed it sideways on top of the flake. From here, I could reach the top of the next flake with my right hand. If anything, this flake was narrower than the first. I waited, not feeling at all comfortable. My legs began to shake and I climbed carefully back down to the big ledge. Joe had been wearing a pair of tricony nail boots when he made the first ascent, which would have enabled him to stand on the small flakes with confidence. I rested for a few minutes and had another go, this time feeling a sloping flake with my left hand. I waited there, poised, getting used to the feel of the rock, the balance, trying to feel comfortable. My feet began to sewing machine again, and I climbed back down. I felt better for being able to climb down in control. Next time I'd get it. I rested for five minutes, shouted up to Adrian, who was watching from the top, that I was going to go for it. I climbed quickly up to my high point. The first joint of the fingers of my left hand were on the sloping hold, and I found that by using my thumb, I could hold myself in balance. There was a, a faint scoop about three feet below the left hand hold. I lifted my left foot and placed it in the scoop, trying to get the maximum of smear from my gym shoes. This was it. I relaxed and felt myself rise as I pulled with my left hand and pushed with my left foot against the scoop and placed my right foot on the top flake. It was a long reach, but I was able to get my fingers on the good hold, and in no time I was pulling over the top with a huge grin on my face. To order Wild Country, please visit v-publishing.co.uk and you can take advantage of our 30% off discount that is site-wide at the moment. If you'd like to hear more from John D. Burns, you can visit his own podcast, which you can find details of in our show notes, 
or explore some of our other episodes, such as episode 14, where he reads a chapter from his own book, Bothy Tales. We're social, so catch up with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter at b-publishing.co.uk.